Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm pleased to welcome to the studio today Andrew Light. He's a distinguished senior fellow here at WRI. Andrew was previously a senior climate official at the State Department and one of the U.S. negotiators in the international climate talks. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. We're also joined by David Wasco, the director of our international climate program. David, welcome to the show. Great to be here. You two have written a terrific piece now available on our web- website that says America can't afford to be a climate loner. Uh, I confess when I read it, I actually thought it said America can't afford to be a climate loser. Um, I don't know that we can afford it to be either. Uh, and you make the case that uh, if we pursue the policies that many of us fear may be coming from the new administration, that we will face diplomatic isolation, economic isolation, and strategic isolation. I want to unpack those in a minute. But first, maybe it's worth saying that we at WRI, like many others in the uh, community of people who care about a just and sustainable world, um, are buffeted every day by new developments. Um, We had news yesterday that the uh, Environmental Protection Agency had been instructed to take down all its climate data. And today there's news saying, well, in fact, they've rescinded that order and they're not going to do it, which some people are taking as confirmation that, yes, in fact, reports that they were going to take it down are true. And also that pressure from groups like WRI and others uh, pointing out that that would be a bad move uh, may be having some effect. There is new things happening today, but what we're going to look at today has got a little bit of a longer shelf life. It's the reasons that it's very much in the United States' interest to continue to be active in international climate affairs. Uh, The first reason that we might not want to withdraw from something like the Paris Agreement or the UNFCCC is it would leave us isolated diplomatically. Andrew, what would that mean? Why should we be concerned? How would we be isolated diplomatically? Why would we be isolated? And why should that bother somebody like President Trump? I think it should bother President Trump if he has any aspirations to achieve anything with other countries he's talked about needing to achieve, such as renegotiating trade deals and all of these things. And to understand the point, you have to understand kind of one thing that really happened in the run-up to Paris, which was quite extraordinary. And one of the unappreciated in uh, uh, one of the unappreciated achievements of Paris was the fact that we, in the process of creating the, tr- the agreement, we brought climate change from this backwater of international relations. I mean, if you go back to 1992 when we created the Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, you know, this was not something that world leaders were really kind of interested in. It was something that the, the few science, you know, and environment geeks in the foreign ministries around the world were following, but it wasn't the issue that it was today. And you fast forward to what happened in Paris in 2015, in order to get so many leaders of the world to come together and create this agreement, we really had to raise climate diplomacy to the stature of where we see now things like international security and trade and economic affairs. And so in the, in the run-up to Paris, we saw behind the scenes a lot, and I was a first-hand witness to this when I was working in Secretary Kerry's office for part of my time at the State Department, quite a lot of, of trading and pushing and cajoling where you're using non-climate levers to get people to sit down and actually hammer out the final climate agreement. So basically what it means is this, 
climate change is a much more important issue than it ever has been in international diplomacy. It is up there with major issues. It is one of the tests that different countries will bring in to determine whether or not you are a good back actor internationally or a bad actor internationally. And so I'm convinced, and I think many others are convinced, that if President Trump wants to get any of his foreign policy agenda uh, across the finish line, uh, he will be isolated if he his, one of his first things he does is pull back from the achievement of creating the Paris Climate Agreement and everything else that went, ar- went along with it. David, the word that comes to mind when I think about this is pariah. Um, are we on the brink of becoming a pariah state? Well, um, certainly um, very much left in an um, odd place vis-a-vis the rest of the international community. And I think there will be strong reactions from the international community if the U.S. does step back um, from the Paris Agreement. And, And stepping back can take different forms. It can take the form of withdrawing entirely from the Paris Agreement. That's actually a rather long and drawn out process. Or it can simply take Uh, the form of the U.S. saying that its commitments that it has made, um, commitments to reduce emissions and take other steps, are no longer operative. And and that in itself is is very risky in terms of the kind of blowback that might be experienced. And we've seen the kinds of responses that can happen internationally um, when you go back to the U.S. and President George W. Bush um, uh, pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol um, in 2000, uh, when, when that administration came into office, um, we've seen the kind of very strong reactions. Colin Powell um, in 2002 talked about this, told the New York Times that um, the blowback was really something they hadn't enti- entirely anticipated and that it was a sobering experience to see the kind of um, reaction that came from the international community when the U.S. did that. And so whether pariah or some other term is the right one, it's clear that there would be this kind of strong reaction. We've already seen um, Chancellor Merkel of Germany saying this is a very important issue uh, to her. Um, We've seen President Xi of China just last week in Davos saying that um, stay and very clearly pointed uh, at at President Trump, um, his remarks saying uh, that uh, this is a hard-won agreement and needs to be Um, stuck to and people need to keep going with it. Theresa May, um, the Prime Minister of the UK today saying in Parliament um, that this is an important um, question as well. Um, You and Andrew make the point here that should we formally withdraw, we would join a distinguished club of three nations. I want everybody to remember these and tell their friends that if we withdraw, the United States will be joining Syria, Nicaragua, and Uzbekistan. Is that the club of great powers that you would like to be a member in? Surely not. Moving right along, economic isolation. Um, We talk here a lot in WRI about the advantages of investing in renewable energy and investing in the low-carbon economy. It seems quite clear from our research that sound environmental policy and sound economic policy go hand in hand. Economic isolation is goes a bit beyond just falling behind other economies that are racing forward into the new economy. David, what do you and Andrew mean when you say there's a risk of economic isolation? Well, it's clear that the direction of travel in the global economy is toward action on climate and adoption of a number of technologies and approaches. 
um, that are aligned with climate action. Um, and just for example, um, the estimates are that the clean energy economy is going to be a $6 trillion market by 2030. Um, so this is growing, and it's growing rapidly. And I think one could even say that that's probably a conservative estimate of where we'll be um, in just 14 years' time, 13 years' time. Um, I was um, talking the other day to um, the CEO of a company, Proterra, which uh, produces uh, zero emissions buses. They're based both in South Carolina and in California. Um, very interesting company, um, really remarkable story about their growth. Um, and one of the issues that um, uh, he pointed to was that if the U.S. pulls back from Paris, um, and pulls back in general from um, climate action, that it really um, creates reputational risk for the U.S. and for its companies, that the U.S. won't be seen any longer as being on the innovative cutting edge. Um, and, you know, this company has competitors in China and elsewhere. And so for him, the question is really, how can we show the world that we are the innovators? And it's, it, it really poses a risk to be thought of as not being one of um, those innovators. And we know that U.S. companies broadly see this as an important um, arena for them to be operating in. Um, just a few weeks ago, 630 businesses and investors from the U.S. Um, and, you know, many major um, company names signed an open letter to the president saying that they want to be able to move forward on climate policies, that the U.S. needs to stay in Paris, and that this is really an arena that, that they see as critical to the economic and business future of um, U.S. business. Andrew, is the Trump administration going to care about being economically isolated? I mean, it's not just on climate that they're looking to withdraw from international agreements. They've said that they're going to abandon the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that they're going to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, the president has said that uh, he thinks that the nationalistic parties in Europe are going to uh, triumph, that the European Union may well fall apart, that he doesn't care. Um, the idea that uh, he's going to care about being economically isolated, why should he? Maybe that's what he's aiming for. Because he'll lose the he'll lose the race, right? He won't be a winner. I mean, that's it's not just one thing about being isolated uh, economically out of a game that you don't care about, but insofar as his priority is creating jobs and his priority is showing American strength abroad, um, we know that there are countries that are prepared to step into a leadership vacuum if the U.S. steps away. And this is, uh, David just mentioned, President Xi's um, comments at Davos, uh, which he followed up shortly thereafter with another speech in Geneva, basically saying the same thing. If the U.S. is not at the table, then we're going to run the table. Uh, and you look at Chinese investment, um, it was uh, $360 billion. They've already announced $360 billion in renewable energy investment through to 2020. Uh, they're you know, building all kinds of things all over the world uh, that countries want. Uh, and and if the United States steps out of this, then we're losing out on that competition. Now, we've got to sort of do a very good job of raising these flags. Uh, if you don't raise them, then it could be the case that, you know, Trump will never see the opportunity that's missed. But I do think that people people recognize that because you've got, if you look across the map, it's not just California, but for example, you know, South Carolina has a, has a $1 billion clean energy uh, uh, economy uh, as of 2013, uh, grown to $3.8 billion by 2016. So you've got jobs in South Carolina that are being created. Um, you've got jobs in Texas in the wind industry. You've got jobs all over this country that are involved in this. And we are going to be losers 
in that race if we completely isolate ourselves. I want to turn to the last uh, item on your list of three, strategic isolation. Um, oftentimes, people who don't respond to concerns about diplomatic isolation or economic isolation, what they're really concerned about is hard power, strategic isolation, you know, sort of a military view of the world. Uh, what's the connection between climate action and geostrategic interests, and why would somebody who's maybe not that concerned about uh, diplomatic or economic isolation perhaps be concerned about this third risk? Who wants to go first? I'll start. I, the, the, the basic point here is, and we all know this, that climate change is making the world less safe. It's destabilizing the world. And we've gone through now almost 10 years, don't you think, David, something like 10 years or more of report after report after report, um, first starting out with, you know, former generals and admirals, you know, being organized by our good friends over at the Center for Naval Analyses, their military advisory board, calling climate change a threat multiplier, um, you know, that it's a destabilization uh, force, just as other kinds of things help to push states into a failed status. Uh, and this causes uh, uh, problems with security around the world. And now, and that was followed up then by the Department of Defense themselves, you know, saying this. So we're no longer in the world of, and, and these guys fight wars, right? They can't afford to like, mess around with a kind of an ideological blinders about what's really going on there. They know that climate change is making the world less safe. And so we become strategically isolated if we, for some reason, say, we're number one, we're going to stop doing what's necessary to do our part to reduce emissions, and that will increase instability by not doing our part to try to stabilize emissions. And number two, if we are planning our risk scenarios outside of any kind of, of recognition that climate change is real, we're gonna be doing something quite different from what our allies are doing in Europe, in Australia, and all over the world. Our NATO allies, for example, are taking this into account. So if we step out of that conversation, um, and just because you know, we're, you know, as, as Rex Tillerson said when he was, uh, who was the nominee for Secretary of State, you know, well, there's still uncertainty about the impacts. Not really. There might be uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen in the snowpack, you know, at the ski resorts in Washington state over the next 10 years. But there's not a whole lot of uncertainty. That is, the temperature gets warmer. All of this stuff gets worse. Uh, and that is going to make us less secure and it'll make our allies less secure. And there will be blowback because of that. David, I know before you joined WRI, among other things, you were at Oxfam. So you come at this not only from an environment perspective, but from a focus on development. And when we think about strategic isolation and strategic risks, obviously a lot of that has to do with what's going to happen in the populous developing countries that are just now beginning to emerge from poverty. So I'm wondering if you bring that poverty lens to this strategic isolation risk, what you see. Well, in, in fact, um, one of the things that um, when I was at Oxfam we looked at is um, humanitarian um, impacts um, from climate change and the ways in which that was going to affect um, the U.S. military and how distracting and um, really sort of, um, you know, a, a, a suck on resources it was going to be um, for the U.S. military if there are increasing levels of um, drought where um, – major famines happen, if there's uh, water insecurity um, in the context of, of those droughts and so forth. And, and there are a lot of military leaders who are very concerned about the ways in which that not only leads to um, conflict and the kinds of um, uh, 
situations that they have to step into, but also if they simply have to go, and the U.S. has been good about this, and hopefully will continue uh, being good about this, if they have to step in to um, help address a serious humanitarian disaster, what that means for their resources. So what we need to do is to really find ways to um, instead of sort of being trapped in that, figure out how we're going to work both in the near term and the long term um, to address those kind of risks. And some of that has to do with taking climate action at home, because when you look out, and this is what the military is good at, when you look out 20, 30, 40 years, it's going to, as Andrew was saying, it's going to get much, much worse. Um, but we also have some challenges already today. And so some of the questions around how do you build resilience in these communities and, and how do you enable communities that are facing um, potential food shortages or, or water shortages um, to deal with those, in fact, is quite critical. And for the U.S. not to be engaging in that, in fact, imagine a situation where you have uh, a, a famine in two parts of the world simultaneously. If you have impacts in a rice-oriented um, region and you have impacts in a wheat-dominated region at the same time, what happens food prices rise, those, those ripple effects really will be felt here. And if we're not engaging with that, um, it does create a sense of isolation in a deep, deep strategic way. And in fact, we're seeing that now in Europe with the refugee flows coming out of Africa, many of which are linked to um, uh, failure of the rains and there's even studies suggesting that the war in Syria was fueled in part by a long-term drought. So we're seeing these uh, geostrategic and in fact war uh, and refugee scenarios um, fed by that. Um, Andrew, did you want to add something? Yeah, because you hit the nail right on the head there. The Syrian drought is an amazingly interesting test case. And when I was at the State Department, we spent a lot of time looking at that example in particular. Um, there's a study that came out on the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences almost two years ago now um, that is a, was, was a form of what we now call attribution science. This is the leading edge of climate science, where you're not just sort of saying, you know, if you warm the planet, then you increase the propensity or the likelihood that we'll have more intense storms or that, you know, this or that uh, kind of natural disaster will happen. But now we're actually really able to, to say, no, 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 that thing was caused by humanly induced climate change. And the Syrian drought is one for which there's a lot of very good evidence. So this paper that I mentioned that came out a couple of years ago basically looked at a bunch of models and looked at the the observable data record going back to the 19th century and concluded that there is no uh, non-human made cause. There's no natural cause, essentially, right, for the Syrian drought. There was no natural cause for the Syrian drought. We caused that one. Now, the drought itself did not cause the destabilization in Syria and all the refugees to, to leave. But it meant that an unstable state, a totalitarian state, um, was having to deal with the fact that about a million farmers left the countryside, came into the cities because they could no longer make a living. They were no longer producing food, and that meant that you had a food crisis. They were in cities putting pressure on the ability to deal with resources there, and that meant that there were more people on the front lines when things began to break. And so, just like the question you asked about economic isolation, what if just Trump doesn't care if he's isolated from allies? Like, this is a guy who's criticized NATO, so maybe he just doesn't care that he's alienating people by pulling away from the strategic implications of climate change. He does seem to care about Syria. He does seem to care about, you know, parts of the world where we get the, uh, uh, the hot spots uh, for terrorism. That's one of the things he promised. And if you ignore climate change, you're ignoring one of the major factors in creating places 
where these problems uh, occur, according to him. And one of the uh, one of the interesting things in terms of our allies working on this is that um, we, the U.S., together with the G7, commissioned the foreign ministers of the G7 commissioned a study right. Right. Um, in two, uh, 2015 to look at these issues. It's called a, a new climate for peace, and it's sort it started a process of better coordinating how we're going to deal with these climate security risks. Now, interestingly, one of the early tests, I think, for the Trump administration is going to be the G7 and the G20 context. How does President Trump come to these summits um, where he has to personally look in the eye all of these uh, other leaders of countries around the world, his colleagues? What is he going to say when the climate issues are put on the table? One of the first, very first tests is, in fact, going to be a G20 foreign ministers meeting. So likely Secretary of State Tillerson is going on in mid-February is going to be sitting with his foreign minister colleagues. Um, and so he will have a test as to what he says when they say this is a security threat that we're very concerned about that we want to tackle. What 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 will be the response at that point? And that's really to go back to the top. That's where we're going to see the first test of whether or not this does create diplomatic isolation. Um, how much are the G7 and G20 leaders willing to push for Trump to do everything from continue the program David just mentioned to reaffirm the importance of Paris and on and on and on? And that, we think, is actually going to be the pressure point this year. Well, let's hope that the G7 and G20 um, allies and other nations are able to um, persuade the administration where others uh, have not yet done so. Uh, I want to leave with a challenge I did not warn you about. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had an opportunity half an hour from now to speak to the president, what would you say to him? President Trump, on the, on the issue of the United States' involvement in international climate action, how would you phrase your advice? Who'd like to go first? Um, I would say first and foremost that um, he has an economic opportunity by S taking. So you speak to the president. He Mr. might even he might even listen. I don't think the chances are high, but he might. President Trump. Well, Mr. President, um, you've talked a lot about jobs and economic opportunity, and in fact, taking action on climate pursuing clean energy opportunities. This is one of the best ways for you to produce jobs and strengthen the American economy. And we have to do that not by pulling away from what's happening internationally, because we won't be getting those export markets. We won't be getting those opportunities around the world to, to uh, work with others. Um, so if uh, if you want to improve that jobs and economic context, this is one of the things that you should seize on. I'm sure that you would be persuasive, David. Andrew, begin President or Mr. President Trump. Mr. President, I guess is the more respectful way that we <laughs> That's proceed. That's exactly right, right? Mr. President. Uh, Mr. President, two things. Uh, number one, I think you need to get on the phone with Secretary Mattis and get a get a briefing from the Defense Department about whether or not climate change is real and whether or not it's, some, it's, it's, it's real enough that you need to act on it and whether or not it's a risk to American interests. That's number one, and I think he will trust those messengers more than he would trust me. And number two, I'd say, and President Trump, many of the people who voted for you, in fact, we look at the polling, it's quite clear, think that climate change is real and they think that the government should do something about it. 
And there are many things that you can do about it that will also, as my good friend and colleague David Wasco has just told you, will also strengthen our economy and also make the world safer. Thank you both for joining me. As always, it's a real privilege to talk with you. I appreciate your uh, succinct answers to these questions and uh, hope that we'll have many listeners and that one of them will have an opportunity to speak to President Trump. This is the World Resources Podcast. I'm Lawrence MacDonald. I've been joined today by Andrew Light. He is a distinguished senior fellow here at WRI and David Wasco, the director of our International Climate Program. Thank you both so much for joining us. Our listeners can find the WRI podcast on iTunes and now on Stitcher. Thanks very much.